Okay, our next speaker for this morning is Dr. Trip Gulick. I refuse to call him Roy. He's not a Roy. <laughs> so Trip is uh, Rochelle Belfer Professor in Medicine and the head of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Weill Cornell College of Medicine and Cornell University in New York. And Trip is going to talk to us this morning about investigational antiretroviral drugs and things that are new in the pipeline. Trip. Thanks, Connie. Good morning. I'm your token East Coaster today. Uh, this is one of the few times of the year where we're having the same weather as you. So New York today is sunny in the 70s. Yay. You guys are sunny in the 70s all the time, right? Uh, I have no financial disclosures. The objectives from this presentation are to identify new investigational HIV drugs in existing mechanistic classes as well as in new mechanistic classes, and I'll describe the latest clinical data for these investigational drugs. So we're going to start with the question, but don't vote yet. The, uh, the question is, which investigational class of HIV drugs is farthest along in development? Is it capsid inhibitor? CD4 attachment inhibitor, CD8 agonist, RNA-H inhibitor, or maturation inhibitor. Now we're going to go to the vote. So think about your answer. Next slide I'm hearing. Okay. Anyone find me somebody to love? Okay, wow, all right. The correct answer is a CD4 attachment inhibitor. So 33% of you got that. The maturation inhibitor was the most popular selection here, and I can understand why you might have thought that. There was one that was in an advanced state of development. You may not know that it has now been pulled from development, so that is not going forward. The so-called second-generation maturation inhibitor, there are third-generation maturation inhibitors behind it. 12% um, of you voted for CD8 agonist. I made that class up, <laughs> so it doesn't exist. So the pipeline for HIV continues to be full, and this is a chart uh, showing where some of the drugs are, uh, the candidate drugs, I should say. Uh, from phase one to phase three, and you can see we have new nucleosides, new non-nukes, new protease inhibitors, uh, and new integrase inhibitors, classes we know well. And in addition, we have members of new mechanistic classes, so new kinds of entry inhibitors, and then I just mentioned maturation inhibitor uh, is still there. Um, I'm not going to try to cover everything there, but I've picked out seven compounds that have the potential to either be better than what we have today or be active against drug-resistant virus. And those are big needs for our field today. So one more question. Again, don't vote yet. Which investigational HIV drug is being investigated for both HIV treatment and HIV prevention? I'm going to discuss all of these. Is it Bictegravir, Cabotegravir, Duraverine, Fostemzavir, or ibilizumab, and now you get to vote. 
Don't look, just vote. <laughs> it's cheating if you're looking. We're on a queen run here. Takes me back to high school. Okay, so 69% of you are correct. Cabotegravir, which we will talk about, is being developed both for HIV treatment and HIV prevention. All right, let's jump in. So nucleosides, we've got a lot of them. We've had them for a long time. What could be better than what we have today? And you might say, can we get more convenient than one pill once a day? There are, I think all of us could identify patients who might benefit from less frequent dosing. So of the compounds I'm gonna to talk to you about today, this one is in the earliest stage of development. MK8591, also called EFDA, and the A is adenosine. So this is an adenosine analog. It's a non-obligate chain terminator and it inhibits reverse transcriptase, but it does it in a novel way. It prevents translocation of the enzyme. So just when you thought you knew all the acronyms, NRTTI is a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. So it does it a different way. It's potent in the test tube uh, against HIV-1 and also has activity against HIV-2 and multi-drug resistant nucleoside resistant strains. Um, what's the interesting thing about this compound? Uh, shown at last year's CROI is early data here. This is on a small number of patients. Um, but what you see here, what do we have? Do we have a pointer? Ah, yeah, here. So what you see here is that on day one, they get one dose of the compounds and then what we're looking at here is up to 10 days later, there is still a potent virologic effect, about 1.7 log reduction. So this compound has an exceedingly long half-life. It could lend itself to weekly dosing. Would that be better than once a day? Well, again, potentially for some people. We learned at CROI this year that this compound is, accumulates in lymph nodes, in vaginal tissue, and rectal tissue of animals. And it is a low-dose formulation, which would lend itself to combining with other antiretroviral compounds. So the long-acting angle here, I think, is one of the places that our field is going. We used to say one pill once a day was the holy grail, and now we're looking at even less frequent options. And I'll even go further and say, I think we're pushing all of medicine to say, how can we be more convenient for patients to take their meds? Now, this can be formulated in different parenteral formulations, and I'm showing you animal data here. It's the only animal data slide. But this, these were two different injectable formulations of this compound uh, given here, and what you see is virologic suppression for, and, and effective drug levels for up to six months later after dosing. So again, interesting to think how we might use compounds like this in the future. Okay, non-nucleosides, we have a lot of them. What could be better than the compounds we have today? Less toxicity, better tolerability, active against non-nuke resistant viruses would be a help, and fewer drug-drug interactions. The candidate compound in this class that's farthest along is Duravarine, and that has completed phase three dosing, so that really um, could be 
a viable drug within the next one to two years. So this is an investigational NNRTI. It's potent at low milligram dose, again, lending itself to be combined with other compounds. It's metabolized by the CYP3A4 enzyme system, but it is neither an inhibitor nor an inducer, so distinguishes itself among the other NNRTIs. And importantly, in the test tube, it is active against viral strains with these common mutations that you know well that are associated with NNRTI resistance, such as the K103N associated with efavirenz resistance, Y181C associated with nevirapine resistance, even the E138K that's associated with ropivirine and etravirine resistance, and even some double resistant mutants. So that has potential. That's test tube data. In humans, this is the phase 1B study, uh, the first in man. It was 18 treatment-naive patients who received one of two doses of deraverine shown in red and purple versus a group that got placebo. This was a short uh, seven days of dosing, but you can see that deraverine associated with a prompt decrease in viral load of about 1.5 logs, demonstrating that it is a potent virologic agent. This supported moving forward with phase two, and uh, this was uh, presented by Jose Gattel, a randomized double-blind two-part study. This enrolled treatment-naive patients. All received TDF and FTC together, and then they were randomized either to Duravarine, the new NNRTI, in darker green, or efavirenz as the control arm shown in gray. And you can see it didn't matter really which you were randomized to. By the end of 48 weeks, just under 80% of all patients on the study were suppressed below detection. Again, showing comparable virologic activity to an efavirenz-based regimen. This supported moving forward with phase three, the large registrational study. We heard this at the CROI meeting this year. Uh, first author was Molina. Kate Squires actually presented this. Multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled randomized study for treatment-naive individuals with viral load levels at least 1,000 and no genotypic resistance to the study drugs. And you can see this was a big study. Just under 800 patients were randomized. All received two nukes, and that was at the choice of the investigator which two-nuke combo they would receive. As you might guess, most people had a tenofovir-based regimen, although a sizable group had an abacavir-based regimen. And then they were randomized to either deraverine, 100 milligrams, or the comparator arm in this study was boosted darunavir once a day. Again, what we're looking at here is the proportion suppressed to less than 50, and you can see it didn't matter which group, both had about uh, 80 to 85% suppression rates. Again, showing quite potent virologic activity in combination with the deraverine arm and certainly comparable to the results that you see with two nukes and boosted darunavir. Virologic failure was uncommon in both groups, about 5% in either group. And importantly, when they genotyped these people who experienced failure, no resistance mutations were seen. Discontinuation due to an adverse event, also low, only 2 to 3%. The lipid effects were distinguished between the two groups, so improved lipids with deraverine, with a slight drop in cholesterol and triglycerides. And as you'd expect from a boosted PI, they saw increases in cholesterol and triglycerides. Again, these data will support the FDA review of this compound, and based on what you see here, you'd guess that they'd be likely to approve it. 
What you're not going to see here is any data on people with NNRTI-resistant viruses going to a deravarine regimen. Those studies have not been done. Integrase inhibitors, what could be better than what we have today? Well, you might like an integrase inhibitor that's active against integrase-resistant viral strains. And again, more convenient. Can you be more convenient than one pill once a day? So a candidate investigational integrase inhibitor is Bictegravir. And uh, what you see here is data showing activity, or what you can almost see here, uh, activity against a number of integrase-resistant strains. So sorry for the, the uh, slide here, but each one of these represents a resistant a viral strain with integrase resistance. And then the bars show you which of the integrase inhibitors has activity against those resistant strains. Uh, Raltegravir is in blue, L-vitegravir is in orange, and you see lots of resistance. So little activity of either one of those to multiple strains. Dolutegravir, the one we have today, is in green. You can see it has appreciable activity against these integrase-resistant viral strains. And then the new compound, Bictegravir, is in the front row here. And you even get the suggestion that it has enhanced even more activity than Dolutegravir against some of those strains. This, of course, is test tube data, not human data. Bictegravir has a long half-life of about 18 hours, so that supports once daily dosing, and it does not require PK boosting. It does not inhibit or induce CYP3A4 or the glucuronidation system, UGT, so this compound has a low potential for drug-drug interactions. The phase one data were presented by Joel Gallant and are actually e-published in JADES. This took a small number of people, 20, who were either treatment naive or off their ART for at least 12 weeks. Um, no prior integrase inhibitor therapy, had viral loads between 10 and 400,000, CD4 is above 200. And this was a dose escalation study. Uh, placebo, one group got, and then increasing doses of Bictegravir, five all the way up to 100. And you can see at the higher doses, you have over a two-log suppression in virus over a short 10 days. Again, establishing that this compound has significant virologic activity. This supported a phase two study that Paul Sachs presented at Croy, and that very same day it was published in Lancet HIV. So this uh, study is available as well uh, through PubMed. This was for treatment-naive individuals with viral loads at least 1,000 and CD4s at least 200. They had to be both Hep B and Hep C neg. And uh, just under 100 were randomized. Everyone received TAF and FTC. And then they were randomized either to Bictegravir or the control arm here was Dolutegravir. The uh, two-to-one randomization, so twice as many people received the Bic as did Dolutegravir. We're looking at both week 24 and week 48 data here. And you can see over 90% of all people enrolled in the study suppressed their viral load levels below detection. And uh, really no big differences between the Bictegravir arm in green and the Dolutegravir arm shown in gray. Adverse events and lab abnormalities were also similar, and people that experienced virologic failure, there were very few. You can see uh, less than 6% overall, and when they genotyped them, no drug resistance was seen with either 
of these regimens. Phase three studies were supported then to move forward and they're currently in progress. They're using a co-formulation of TAF, FTC, and Bictegravir all in one pill. Now, why did they choose those drugs? Oh, right, the company makes all three. So that is moving forward. So this would be an integrase inhibitor, again, highly potent from what we've seen so far, doesn't require boosting, it's once a day, has activity against integrase-resistant virus, although I didn't show you clinical data to support that, and then the co-formulation that you see there. The other investigational integrase inhibitor, which many of you have heard about, is cabotegravir. It is a cousin of dolutegravir. It has a similar structure and a similar resistance pattern. It's available both in oral form, um, which shows potent antiviral activity at these doses, and that's been published. But the excitement about this compound is the nanotechnology formulation the parenteral, either given sub-Q or IM injections of cabotegravir. And this compound has a very long half-life. You can see 21 to 50 days. Here's some uh, PK data for you. So this is a number of different doses of cabotegravir are given at time zero here. We're looking at drug levels. Usually when you look at PK curves, we're thinking about hours or days. We're actually talking about weeks here. So you can see at some of these doses, up to a year later, after a single dose of this compound, they still had detectable drug levels. This drug hangs around for a long time. Something like 20% of people will have detectable levels even after a year. The, uh, so this supports uh, monthly or perhaps every other month dosing. And uh, the safety profile so far in early studies has been limited to injection site reactions and not the ones you remember from T20. These are fairly well tolerated and seem to decrease over time. All right, so the big study that has been completed is the LATTE 2 study, which sounds pretty good right now. And uh, this was an all IM maintenance regimen of cabotegravir and an intramuscular formulation of real pivarine, the NNRTI. So this was a phase 2B multi-center. It was open label, enrolled about 300 treatment-naive individuals, and they started off on an oral regimen. So they received a Bacavir 3TC and oral cabotegravir. Now, why did they do that? Well, once you inject this compound into someone, you can't get it out. So they put in an oral run-in phase to make sure that the person didn't have side effects, rash or perhaps LFT abnormalities right off the bat. So they uh, studied the oral regimen for 20 weeks and then randomized them to one of three strategies. So one group got um, injectable cabotegravir and rilpivirine once a month, one got it every other or every two months, and then one group got all oral. They simply continued the two nukes and cabotegravir regimen. And how did they do? So you can see in the induction period when they're on two nukes plus cabotegravir, well over 90% suppressed below detection. And then that was required for randomization. You can see during the maintenance period, which goes all the way out almost a year, that all groups did well, with over 90% of people maintaining suppression on this injectable regimen. So an injection either, again, once a month or every two months. In subsequent analyses, they did see a couple of virologic breakthroughs in the every two-month dosing, so they will be moving forward with monthly dosing. 
Is that likely to help our patients? Again, I think we can all think of patients who don't want to take one pill once a day, but might agree to monthly injections. And we now know from this study, which is the first, that that can effectively suppress HIV over the course of a year. Side effects, again, limited to injection site reactions, and these are common. You can see almost everybody gets them. Grade one are the mild ones, and grade two are the moderate ones. But importantly, only 1% or two patients in total withdrew because of the injection site reaction. So these are much better tolerated, again, than the ones we know from the T20 days. As we identified in the opening question, cabotegravir not only being pursued for treatment or maintenance treatment, as we saw here, but is also being looked at for PrEP. So we know today PrEP is one pill once a day, tenofovir FTC combined, I should say TDF FTC combined. And then people said, hmm, could injectable cabotegravir be a viable alternative for HIV PrEP? So that's being studied right now through the HIV Prevention Trials Network, study number 083. And you got the chair of this study right here in Los Angeles. It's Rafi Landovitz, who's probably just around the corner somewhere. Um, and he, uh, this is now being done at sites uh, across the country and across the world. So it's enrolling adult MSM and transgender women who are at high risk for HIV. You can see it's a huge study, over 4,500 people will be enrolled. Uh, this is the definition they use uh, of high risk. And uh, it is comparing head-to-head -head TDF, FTC, one pill once a day, standard of care for PrEP, versus CAB, cabotegravir, being injected every other month as a preventative. And it is double-blinded, so everybody gets pills and everybody gets injections. Um, and so it's fully designed as a non-inferiority efficacy study to assess whether cabotegravir is non-inferior to the standard of care. The first participant was just enrolled in December and uh, operators are standing by if you uh, have people to refer. We're doing it in uh, New York as well at my place. Okay, those are the compounds in the pipeline in existing classes. What about newer or novel classes? Well, we turn to the entry inhibitors and uh, there is the potential for novel mechanisms of action and more convenient dosing than some of the ones we've had to date. So if you'll recall, HIV entry is a three-step process. In the first step, HIV recognizes and binds to the CD4 receptor sitting on the surface of the T cell. When that binding occurs, it causes a conformational change, which allows binding in the second step to the co receptor, which again, as you know, is either CCR5 most commonly or CXCR4. When that binding occurs, it then allows fusion of the viral membrane with the host cell membrane. So three sub-steps to HIV entry. And as you know, we're good at inhibiting two of these. So we have a CCR5 inhibitor that's approved, Maraviroc. We don't use it a lot, but sometimes we turn to it. And then we've had the fusion inhibitor, N-fuvertide, or T20, for a number of years. But as everyone knows, the problem with that compound is that it's twice daily injections. So it has a new compound, a cousin that I'm going to mention called albuvertide, which improves on the convenience. But the one step we have not yet had a drug to interfere with is the very first step in the life cycle, and that's binding to the CD4 receptor. 
So I'm pleased to tell you that there are compounds in development which now interfere with this step. We call these CD4 attachment inhibitors. So one is a small molecule, fostemzivir, which binds to GP120 and prevents it from binding to the CD4 receptor. And then a second one, which I'll also mention, is a monoclonal antibody, ibilizumab, which targets the CD4 receptor itself as opposed to the virus. So this would only be the second drug in our repertoire, assuming it's approved, where we're actually targeting the host, not the virus, Maraviroc being the other, because it targets the CCR5 receptor. So the good thing about compounds with new mechanisms of action is that they have activity even in people with multi-drug resistant virus. And I'm gonna ask you a hands question. So you have to raise your hand. Anyone remember that? Um, how many of you are taking care of someone who's failed all currently available drugs? Okay, so uh, it was 11% of you. Um, and I get about the same answer where, wherever I ask that question, including New York. So it's not common, but everyone is beginning to see a patient or two. Uh, will it increase over time? Hopefully not, but we need options for those folks too. So drugs with new mechanisms of action provide hope for that group. So here's the first one, Fostemzivir. It's an oral HIV attachment inhibitor. It's actually a prodrug of Temzivir. So the Fos is broken off after swallowing um, in the stomach and it goes to the active compound Temzivir. As mentioned, it inhibits CD4 binding by binding to HIV GP120. Pharmacokinetics suggests that it's a once-daily drug and doesn't require boosting. Interestingly, about 12% of patients will have baseline polymorphisms which render fostemzivir inactive. So we may have to screen for that before we use this compound. This is the phase one study in 50 people, dose escalation. You could see at the highest doses, this was quite potent, associated with a 1.5 log drop in virus as monotherapy over a short eight days of dosing, but it establishes CD4 attachment as a viable mechanism that translates to a virologic effect. This supported a phase two study, which was unusual um, in that they defined treatment experience on this study as taking for at least one week at least one antiretroviral drug. Not typically what, how we define treatment experience, but that's what they did. They pre-screened for susceptibility to the compound and enrolled 250 people. The background regimen for this was not two nucleosides. It was TDF plus raltegravir, sort of a unique background regimen. And then they combined it with one of four doses of fostemzivir, and then the control arm used boosted adizanivir. This study went on. They eventually identified the 1,200 milligram once a day of fostemzivir as the optimal dose in this study. And here is the uh, virologic results. So at the end of 48 weeks, using the modified intent to treat among the four arms of fostemzivir, between 60 and 80% suppression, compared with about 70% in the boosted adizanivir. If you looked at observed data, um, you can see that the results are much higher than that. And uh, in terms of less than 50, at the end of two years, week 96, 61% with fostemzivir and 53% with adizanivir. So perhaps more disappointing than some of the other studies we, we've seen, 
But again, this would be part of a regimen for a treatment experienced person. In terms of side effects, fairly well tolerated. 2.5% discontinued fostemzivir regimens for side effects versus 10% in the atazanavir group. And as you might guess, most of that was bilirubin related. This compound has FDA breakthrough status as of July of 2015, which facilitates its development specifically targeting heavily treatment experienced people. The phase three study in that group is fully enrolled and we anticipate seeing, seeing those results perhaps in the next year. If successful, this would support the approval of this compound for treatment experienced people. Okay, the other newer HIV entry inhibitor is the monoclonal antibody ibilizumab, and it binds, as I mentioned, to the CD4 receptor, specifically the second domain, and is not thought to interfere with immune function. This compound has been around for a while. So as an antibody, it's delivered either uh, in these studies intravenous, they're working on an intramuscular and sub-Q formulations in the long run. It can be dosed every one to four weeks, Note the dates here. This compound goes back in development quite a few years to 2004. Some of the more recent results have not been published. So IAS and IDSA abstracts that are uh, 11 or six years old. Um, but the last one here shows the activity of this compound in treatment experienced patients with three class resistance. So that's the target for this compound. And one can see here when combined, uh, two different doses were tested, but ultimately about 40% of people were able to regain virologic suppression with an ibilizumab regimen. This is the phase three study. You may be aware that the FDA changed their rules about phase three for heavily treatment experienced people. And so they try to limit the amount of monotherapy now. So this was a truly experienced group. They had three class resistance. There were 40 people enrolled for a phase three study. That's how it is. They got one dose of ibilizumab and then just saw the virologic activity over 14 days. And this is showing you a half log or one log drop and you can see most people had that. Then they allowed optimization of the background regimen and people continued to receive several doses of ibilizumab. And uh, as reported in CROI this year, about half of people or just under 43% were able to reestablish virologic control with ibilizumab injectable every two weeks plus an optimized background regimen. That right there is the phase three result, and that could be submitted to the FDA for approval for ibilizumab, and I believe the FDA has the data right now and is exploring that. So we may have availability of this compound again within the next one to two years. Lastly, albuvertide. If it sounds like confuvertide, that's because it's a fusion inhibitor. This is being developed in China and the um, target here is people who have failed the first regimen there, which is two nukes and a non-nuke. So this compound probably won't be available to us, but the interesting thing about it is it's long half-life. So it is 11 to 12 days, and this would allow this fusion inhibitor to be dosed weekly, as opposed to twice a day at, with infuvertide. Um, so this was one of the early studies where they combined with the protease inhibitor, and you can see about half of people, this was a second-line regimen, reestablished virologic control in this study from China. And then they presented part of a phase three study at the Glasgow meeting, and again found that 
people who used albuvertide and then optimized their background, 80% were suppressed. So this shows significant activity in people failing first-line therapy. The reason I threw this in is just to say that, again, one of the themes in our field is how to make the compounds that we have even more convenient for people. So going from twice a day dosing, I'm sure you would all agree, to once a week dosing could be a big step forward. I will stop there one minute over and thank you for your attention. And your thunderous applause too. So we're gonna do questions. I guess I'm on my own, eh? Questions, anybody? Wait, there's one, here it comes. It's a novel, okay. In the Bictegravir head-to-head study with Dolutegravir, exclusion criteria included previous OIs, CD4 less than 200, no hep B or hep C, and no pregnancy. Moreover, 96% of the participants were male. It looks like they cherry-picked entrance into the study. Okay, yes. <laughs> it does look that way. Um, you know, I think this is a valid comment. Um, one could say that in testing these new compounds, we've seen over the years that they tend to, I'll use the word you use, cherry pick. Um, hard to defend that, right? Because we're trying to apply these results to much larger studies um, that can mirror what, who is uh, infected and affected by HIV today. So yeah, it's disappointing that they can't enroll more women. Um, some of the other things like hep B or hep C, I think that they were excluding that for safety reasons in phase two, which is reasonable. Phase three, oftentimes they liberalize those restrictions. Um, but I think your point's a good one. Okay. All right, thanks.